Well, as I mentioned, we're uh, taking uh, three weeks to look at our core values, gospel, community, and mission. And today, uh, we want to have a look at the church in Antioch, my favorite church in the New Testament, to give us a model uh, of mission this morning. Uh, the book of Acts tells about how the gospel triumphs from Jerusalem, uh, ending in Rome, uh, and is headed to the ends of the earth, and eventually reached us. Uh, and today, we're seeing how the gospel triumphed in this great city of Antioch. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord to give us eyes to see. Uh, wonderful things from his word here. Father, we pray that you would come now and descend upon your people. Come and teach us just as the rain falls from the sky, that your teaching fall and land on good hearts that we may bear fruit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new to IDC, we have what we call the Peace Plan, which summarizes our global mission strategy. It's an acronym. The P is for plant churches. The E is for evangelize the world. A is for aiding the poor and the sick. C is care for the uh, orphan and the oppressed. And E is equip leaders. Uh, you'll hear about that a lot if you've been around. And this is what I call a, an integrative model of mission because it encompasses both word and deed ministry. It reflects both the great commandment to love neighbor and the great commission to make disciples. And there are multiple pathways for you to engage uh, in the peace plan here at IDC. And I've selected Antioch because Antioch really is an inspiring picture of what we aspire to be as a church. You know, models are inspiring, aren't they? I don't mean like supermodels. I mean like a hero that you, you might have. You know, when I was a kid, Michael Jordan was my basketball hero. And my mom, I remember, splurged for Jordans on my birthday and I had the posters on my wall, and I wore number 23 in basketball, tried to stick my tongue out, uh, and I would try my best to dunk a basketball like Michael Jordan, but to my great dismay, it was a pathetic-looking attempt at Michael Jordan as I would try to dunk. The only way I could dunk was on my Nerf basketball goal, uh, you know, in my, in my bedroom. But I went for it, you know? And as you think about the church in Antioch, it's kind of like the Michael Jordan of church plants. Um, we may never be Antioch, but we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. This is a remarkable church. There's so many traits uh, that we can observe and long to apply here. And many of these traits, I will say, are present in Imago Dei. Uh, some, though, are more aspirational goals uh, as we want to get better. And I think it's important for us to remember that in any organization or, or a church, your values are things that you're constantly pursuing, right? A value doesn't mean you've executed it. It means you aspire to it. And it's not like we have gospel. Oh, we're going to move on now. Um, you know, we have community. Oh, we've got that. We're going to move. No, for the rest of our lives, we're saying these are things that we want to constantly uh, try to improve, uh, uh, pursue, and so on. And when we see Antioch, we see a, a, a model of a church that is quite inspiring. Uh, in fact, when we were first thinking about planting a church, uh, one of my friends suggested, as we were thinking about the name of our church, that we even call it Antioch. And as I think about it, it wasn't a bad idea. It's easier to pronounce than Imago Dei. Uh, I don't know if you've invited anyone here before and they don't know what the name is or how to say it. 
I have so many examples I won't waste your time with, uh, but yesterday it was, or Friday, uh, they thought it was modern day church. How, how long have you been at modern day church, pastor? And I was like, it's, it's Imago Day, but that's a good name too. Um, but we thought about Antioch because Antioch, it, it's character, you know, it's a sending church, it's a well-taught church, it's a diverse church, it's a praying church. This, this church became the launching pad for worldwide missions. And we see here in Acts 11 how it started, how it developed, and then in Acts 13 how it sent out missionaries. Now it's important, I think, to know the context of Antioch in order to feel the power of it. So let me take you there for just a moment. This was the third largest city in the Roman world. Next to Rome and Alexandria, this was the queen of the east, Antioch. To quote the movie Tombstone, it was very cosmopolitan. It was, it was quite diverse Politically, it was the capital of Syria, so it was in Syria in Paul's day, but now it's in Turkey. It's in southeast Turkey. If you were to go uh, to Antakya now, uh, it would be near ancient Antioch. So you've got a massive city. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was a crossroads for uh, trade and commerce. One would find, if one went to Antioch, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Egyptians, uh, Indians, Asians, all of them populated Antioch. You could do some serious people watching in Antioch. Religiously, it was very pluralistic. That is, they believed in multiple gods, and it was quite idolatrous. Uh, in fact, there were cult prostitutes all around these idolatrous places of worship. So you think about the idolatry, you think about the immorality, you think about the diversity, and all of this made a great place for a church. In fact, John Stott says, no more appropriate place could be imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for worldwide Christian mission. God's light shines bright in dark places. And amazingly, it's here in Antioch, not Jerusalem, where the disciples were first called Christians. The breakthrough was of such magnitude that they came up with a new term. They called them Christians first in Antioch. Luke, the historian, says, you want to know what a Christian is? Look to Antioch. This is where the term came from. So here's my question this morning for us. What made the church in Antioch so powerful? Because I want these ingredients. And so let me give you five of them, okay? First of all, effective evangelism. We'll see that in verses 19 to 21. And then we'll have a look at dynamic discipleship. Thirdly, mercy ministry. Fourthly, multicultural membership and leadership. And fifthly, spirit-directed, church-sent, and church-supported missionaries. If you didn't get all those, I'll go one at a time, and you'll get them then. We won't do them all five at one time, because that's really hard to do. Okay, so effective evangelism. The church here in Antioch is birthed out of people sharing the gospel. And that's the ideal, right? You plant the gospel and you establish a church. So you read in verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Remember Stephen in, in Acts 6 and 7 was martyred, the first uh, Christian martyr for, for his preaching. And in light of that, uh, the Christians were scattered out of Jerusalem. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but Christians went out uh, and did evangelism. Acts 8, 4 says they all went out preaching the word. Not the apostles, but just the ordinary Christians. And here we see that some of them traveled as far as Phoenicia, that is to the northwest on the coast. Some went to Cyprus, so they went off the land onto an island, uh, Cyprus. 
and others went to Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Some went speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So Jewish believers um, who had now believed in the Messiah were sharing with uh, their kinsmen. But there were others, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. And when Luke says Hellenists here, that is Greek-speaking individuals. And he doesn't mean Greek-speaking Jews like Acts 6, but Greek-speaking people from all kinds of places that were in Antioch. Greek was the predominant language in Antioch. And so these individuals, people of Cyprus and Cyrene, were now taking the gospel to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the first thing that strikes me in these opening verses of this church is that these disciples, these evangelists, are not named. They're unnamed individuals. And that's, that should encourage the majority of Christians that you don't have to be a celebrity Christian to make an impact in the world. These unnoticed disciples, unknown disciples, are known by Jesus, and they turned the world upside down. Who are they? Oh, they're just some dudes, some dudettes from Cyprus and Cyrene who just went about scattering the gospel. And that's very important for us to remember. The most important people in the church are not always the most famous in the church. And we should never confuse significance with popularity. These are significant, faithful individuals. It's one thing to have Tim Tebow come and preach a celebrity it's another thing to have an entire congregation spreading the gospel in their networks and in their neighborhoods. And God bless Tim Tebow. I've never met him, but he seemed like a great guy. But you know what I'm saying, right? And I imagine we'd pick up more single ladies if we had Tim Tebow up here instead of me. But I don't want just a Tim Tebow Sunday. I want a church that are like these individuals from Cyprus and Cyrene who are just out and about doing their thing. These nobodies witness to their neighbors and turn the world upside down. And that, by the way, is how the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. As one church historian put it, the primary change agents in the spread of faith were men and women who earned their livelihood in some secular manner and spoke their faith to whom they met in this natural fashion. That's how it happened. So you go to your workplace. How was your weekend? It was good. I watched some football. I sweat a lot outside. Um, I went to church. We talked about Jesus, and you get in a conversation. It is the normal, everyday rhythm of life. And what that involves is a Christian embracing his or her missionary identity. You see, these individuals embraced their missionary identity. And it's important for us to always come back to this. To be a Christian is to be a missionary. Luke says this is where the term Christian came from in this context and why. What were they doing? They were li living missional lives. To be a Christian is to live a missional life. The only difference between you and an overseas missionary is location, not identity. Not identity. And some may, may go to another location and we need that, as I'm going to mention here in just a moment. But our fundamental identity is a little Christ. And Christ was a missionary. And so let's see our neighborhoods, let's see our, our networks, as Denise just set up here, as sovereign appointments and placements of God putting people in our paths. Now notice three reasons for their evangelistic faithfulness. One is quite obvious. 
They have a burning passion for Christ. You see, nothing would deter these disciples. Think about it. You've been relocated because of opposition. And what do they do? Well, they don't just sort of say, well, we better not keep doing that. No, persecution wouldn't stop them. Relocation wouldn't stop them. Why? Because their heart was aflame with a love for Christ. And I would say, if you want to be an effective evangelist, this is where it starts, in our hearts. With a passion for Christ. These missionaries here in Antioch had no mission board. They had no position. Just a passion. What makes a great evangelist a great missionary? A great passion. And that's how most of our lives have been changed, I would imagine, in this room. If you're a Christian, somebody in your family, your friends, your web of relationships, somebody that we don't know had a passion for Jesus Christ and commended Christ to you. Maybe your parents, right? This is how it was happened for me. Just ordinary teammates. The Lord used FCA in my life to lead me as, as teammates and people from other sports led me to faith. Nobody knows who they are, but they love Jesus and they spoke out of the overflow of a heart. And let me add here, don't think that your passions will automatically change in some future season. Hey, don't, don't think that you, you need something else to happen in order to start now becoming uh, a faithful uh, evangelist. No, passion is something that doesn't change, right? It's, some, or it's something that does change, but it's something that we cultivate and it does, you don't automatically become a faithful missionary by uh, some new job assignment or relocation. We do this right now. We do the work of an evangelist. So there's a burning passion for Christ. But notice secondly here, there is a cultural engagement mentality in these missionaries. They don't have a retreating mentality of a sort of a bomb shelter mentality. But they say, no, we're, we're in Antioch. And especially verse 20, these men of Cyprus, that is the island, and Cyrene were commending Christ to the Greeks. Cyrene is North Africa. Cyrene is present-day Libya, quite near uh, Benghazi, actually. And it's people from Cyrene, Africans, who are commending Christ in Antioch. This is just a total side note, but it's important to know, I think. We should never think as missions, about missions as Americans going to Africa. Africa got the gospel long before America got the gospel. We are the ends of the earth, <laughs> right? We are indebted to people of Cyrene who in God's providence over 2,000 years from Acts 11, somehow the gospel got to us here. And so uh, I'm not saying we don't go to Africa, we do. But we, we, should, we should also see our indebtedness, right? These are faithful evangelists from Libya, from North Africa. And what are they doing? They're, it's a breakthrough. They're sharing the gospel with the Greeks. Some commentators have called these individuals mavericks. That is in a good sense, or F.F. Uh, F. Bruce calls them daring spirits who are out and about in the culture engaging the Gentiles. They understood Gentiles. You see, these individuals from Cy Cyprus and Cyrene, remember Barnabas was from Cyprus. That's one of the reasons I think they sent him. They would have done business all the time with the Greeks. They would not have as much anti-Gentile prejudice as the Jewish believers might have. They understood them. They were not restricted. And I think that's an important point for us to see here, right? Those who are often raised in very strict religious 
cultures find themselves handicapped in evangelism because they don't know how to have conversations with people. And the Lord uses these individuals who are men of the world in a good sense, who know, knew how to engage people, who did not retreat from people, and he uses them to make Antioch the launching pad of worldwide missions. And I think there's a note here of, of their sensitivity to the context just by Luke saying that they were preaching the Lord Jesus, which is something that's, you know, you can just sort of move on to the next verse. But as you read all of Acts, it's interesting that it doesn't say they were preaching Jesus Christ, that is the Messiah, which had an inherently Jewish background, of course. But the Lord Jesus, and this word Lord Kyrios, was very common in the Greco-Roman world, as Caesar was called Kyrios. In the mystery religions, there was a Kyrios. You've got to think about it. These individuals were engaging people in Antioch who probably had no background in the Bible. And this message of Jesus as the hope of Israel may have sounded very strange. Now, undoubtedly, they got there eventually to fill in all the gaps, especially when they brought Paul in. But to begin with, you see a sense of gospel intelligibility. They understood the people, and they were able to communicate in a manner that was faithful. They didn't have one tract for every kind of person. They were able to engage the various people uh, that they encountered. Now, let me just make two fine points here on you and I being effective evangelists. You can tell I haven't preached in a while. I'm not even close to number two yet. Uh, <laughs> There are two categories, I think, of people here at IDC, if I may speak generally. One is, um, some of you live and work among unbelievers all the time, and you need to be bold and courageous, wise, all those elements of being a good evangelist. So let me just encourage you to do that, to see the Lord sovereignly placing people in your web of relationships. Uh, to do things that are really simple things like practicing hospitality and befriending uh, your neighbors. Sometimes Christians find it easier to go on a mission trip overseas than to have their neighbors over for dinner. God help us. Let me encourage you to invite people to IDC on a Sunday. We know that most evangelism should happen outside, but we also know that many of us have been converted inside in a worship service. And I would just add, next week as we start Ecclesiastes, it's a hard book, <laughs> but it's a great book for doubters, for skeptics, for people wrestling with the big issues of life. It'd be a great series for them to come to at any point. So that's category one. Category two is this. Some of you have to work to deliberately get outside of your predominantly Christian context in order to do faithful evangelism. Just one personal story. I have a friend named Oren Martin. He uh, is a professor of theology at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, or the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, I should say, in Louisville. Uh, and Oren and I went to school together about 20 years ago now. That's how old we are. And he uh, was taking me to the airport about a month ago. And his wife, Cindy, was in the back seat. And Cindy says, hey, uh, Oren, tell Tony about your new side hustle. And uh, he said, yeah, I got a job at Discount Tire Company on Fridays. Now, this is a guy who's a full-time professor. He doesn't need the money at Discount Tire. And who goes to Discount Tire if you want, you know, a little Friday thing? And Oren said, man, I don't know any non-Christians. And so I had to get a job. And I love cars. And I've worked on cars my whole life. And so this guy gets out of his, you know, three-piece suit, because that's how they roll up at Southern. And, and, they, and he goes to Discount Tire on Fridays. 
so that he can fix people's tires and talk about the Lord Jesus. That, well, that's the kind of thing, right, that we have to work to, in this category, to deliberately get outside of our context. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you're not a Christian, it might feel very awkward to hear me tell Christians to talk to you about uh, the gospel. And what I want to say to you is, if this is real, what I'm talking about, if the gospel is true, if your sins can be forgiven, and you can enjoy a new heaven and new earth with a resurrected body, you can know the joy of salvation in this life. If, that, if all of that is true and more, how selfish do we have to be to keep that to ourselves? Don't we have to tell you? I think we do. We don't want to keep this good news to ourselves, do we? Well, you see here, this church, effective evangelists, they have a burning passion for Christ. They have a, a, a cultural engagement mentality. And thirdly, there is something else that Luke wants us to see Yes, they were able to make the gospel clear. Yes, they did not retreat but engage. Yes, they were diverse evangelists who were uh, not scared of people in society. But here is the real reason for the success of Antioch. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the secret sauce. The hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord. That's what we got to have. Nehemiah goes up to the king and says, and the king says, why are you so sad, Nehemiah? And he says, because the city is in rubble and, and there's no one to rebuild the walls. And the king says, well, what do you want, Nehemiah? And he prays and he says to the king, I want to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall. And the king grants permission to Nehemiah. Why? Did the king have too much to drink that day? Was he just in some happy mood? No. Nehemiah 2.8 tells us, because the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the difference. Elijah has success at Mount Carmel, and the narrator concludes 1 Kings 18 saying, the hand of God was on Elijah. My friend, are you asking God's hand to be on your life? You know, it's great to have a little acronym. It's great to have a little name. It's great to have a website and have a mission strategy, but we don't have jack squat if we don't have God's hand on us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. May God's hand be on us. May God's hand be on these ministries we spotlighted today. And may God add to our number those who are being saved. Effective evangelism. Number two, dynamic discipleship. The church began in evangelism. It continued in discipleship. You see it with verse 22. The report of the, uh, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So there's accountability here. That's a built-in aspect of discipleship. Here it's kind of church-to-church accountability. Um, this is a new thing, and so um, I don't think this is like quality control you know, entirely that the church in Jerusalem is worried about what's happening in Antioch, though I'm sure there were probably mixed motives with with some, some perhaps were suspicious. Luke doesn't tell us all of their motives, but the report came to Antioch or to Jerusalem, and now they want to send someone to check it out. And they send the right guy. They send Barnabas. Don't you love Barnabas? I think the outside of Jesus, he may be my favorite person in the Bible. Barney. What do we know about him? Well, he was an encourager. His own nickname was son of encouragement. 
You know, you get a nickname. That wasn't his real name. That was his nickname. You get a nickname from something that uh, reflects you. Would anyone give you that nickname? <laughs> Son of encouragement. Right? I've had a lot of nicknames. That's not been one. Barnabas... Barnabas is, though. He is a generous guy. He invests in the Apostle Paul. Later, he takes Mark, and here he goes to this church. He himself was from Cyprus, and it says, verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God. I love this verse, and he was glad. Grace should make our hearts glad. You know, Barnabas is not this little stick-in-the-mud, you know, narrow-minded, little legalist, because legalists see the grace of God, and they're mad. Barnabas sees the grace of God and he's glad. And I think he's glad because, for one, he had a culture. He was, he was from Cyprus, but he had a heart that was big. He had a good eye and a, a glad heart. And he, I think, is as pivotal in this movement because Barnabas, I think, sets a tone of encouragement in the church. Right? It's one thing to have gospel doctrine. It's another thing to have gospel culture to have encouragement, life-giving encouragement coming from the people. we got to have that. Because I would venture to say this morning, there's no one in this room that feels over-encouraged. <laughs> right? Someone encouraged you today, and you're like, I'm good, I'm good, I don't need any more. Right? No, life's hard, man. we got all kinds of stuff coming at us. And uh, we want to be uh, Barnabases to each other, Barnabai to, to each other, plural. Right? Maybe that's the name of our church, Barnabai Baptist Church. Uh, drop the Baptist. Anyway, Barnabas. We love this guy, don't we? Now, I think if someone who would have been raised in a really strict environment would have come to Antioch and they would have said, oh, you're not doing it like Jerusalem. No, your music's not right. Right? That sort of thing happens. Now, the dress would have been different in Antioch. Now, the whole, the whole culture would have been different. They would have viewed diets and days differently in Antioch. But Barnabas is mature enough to see the big picture. And he sees God at work. And all he does is pour gasoline on the fire. And he encourages the people to be faithful, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So let's not think lightly of encouragement. It's important in a healthy church. But there's more than that. There's instruction. Notice verse 25 and 6. Here you see some of the humility of Barnabas. As he looks at the need of the church, he says, these people need to be rooted in sound doctrine. And Barnabas, who could have been the superstar of Antioch, instead goes to get Paul. And later it will be not Saul and, or not, excuse me, not Barnabas and Saul, but it will be reversed to Saul and Barnabas. Paul will take the, the primary place of leadership. And you see humility here in Barnabas. You see a recognition of God's gifts. Uh, evident in Barnabas. He understands that they need someone, and so he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. We left Saul in Acts 9 after they wanted to kill him in Jerusalem, and they sent him back home to Tarsus, and he had been in Asia, modern-day Turkey, in an intense time of preparation, probably doing some measure of evangelism and so on, and he went and got Saul, and he brings him to Antioch. And notice it, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many of disciples. And this just underscores for us the importance of instruction, the importance of teaching. There's no substitute for biblical teaching if we want to grow. We have to prioritize it. We prize it. God builds his church by his word. 
You can build a personality or build a crowd on personality, but you can only build a church on God's word. For the rest of our lives, we're going to be learning and growing. As H.P. Charles put it, we are always students and never experts when it comes to the scriptures. So there is teaching. And notice that the last aspect here of this discipleship. There is fruit. And the fruit is evident by the fact that these disciples are called Christians. Now this is remarkable. When the world saw Christians previously, they saw Jewish Christians because everything had been in uh, primarily in Jerusalem. But in Antioch, they're called Christians. Not Jews, not unconverted Gentiles. It's not restricted to being Roman or to be a Greek or to be a Persian, but Christians. Only three times this, this term is used in the New Testament. Previously and uh, later we see that Christians were called the followers of the way, but it appears that they accepted this as a fitting label. Yes, I am a Christ follower. I am a little Christ. I am reflecting Christ. That's a Christian. And it was not restricted to your background or your race, your ethnicity. It was a new humanity to be a Christian. Antioch showed the world something radically different. And so we, again, see them as a wonderful model for us. Number three, mercy ministry. I love how now there is a physical need in the world. And this is a church that doesn't say, well, we're a teaching church not a practical, you know, uh, act of mercy church. Like we don't have to choose. Are we going to be robustly expositional and teach? Or are we going to make a real difference locally as we do mercy? We say yes. Because Antioch does it. And this, this is who we want to be. This is our Michael Jordan of church plants. We may be like the little kid dunking on the Nerf basketball coal, but we're going after it. Right? And here you see the mercy ministry aspect. Prophets have come down to Jerus or from Jerusalem, and there's one in particular named Agabus who makes quite an astonishing prediction that there's going to be a famine over the then known world, that is the Greco-Roman part of the world. And that this took place, Luke tells us, during the reign of Claudius. So the prediction was right, in other words. Now, this, again, this is amazing. This is not like predicting the final score to tomorrow night's national championship game like LSU is going to beat Clemson by 17 or something like that no one would actually say that up here um, but this was a famine in the whole world and notice these Christians in Antioch by the way are going to be impacted by this famine themselves but what do they what do they think it's quite counterintuitive they don't respond the way a lot of people did during Y2K remember when that was a thing there's so much canned green beans in people's closets. And it's like, we're thinking about ourselves, man. Why is the, the, the computers can't handle the year 2000. Everything's going to collapse. Uh, Y2K. Well, here, this, this great famine's happening all over the world. And they say the people in Judea are going to be hurt harder than us. And so we all determine according to our ability to give to this physical need. And they did it by sending it with Paul and Barnabas. Historians tell us that this famine was the result of the flooding of the Nile River in 45 AD. And the Egyptian harvest, that was the breadbasket of the region, was damaged so severely that it sent grain prices skyrocketing through the Roman world. And here is how the church responds. Let's give. Let's serve. 
And it's beautiful, isn't it? They're selfless, they're generous, it's corporate. And there are many ways for us to engage in the physical needs in our local area through these ministries that we've highlighted uh, this morning. Mercy ministry. Number four, the fourth ingredient of this missional church is they had multicultural leadership and membership. Verse one tells us about the leadership in the Antioch church of chapter 13. Uh, It's kind of what I call the fab five to uh, use a basketball uh, story background. Five individuals that are noted and they're quite diverse. We have Barnabas, we've already met him, a native of Cyprus. Simeon, uh, called Niger, that is his, his name meant black or dark. Lucian, uh, from Cyrene, that is North Africa. Menaean, who was brought up in Herod's court, related to the upper class, the royal upper class. Some historians have said he was either a foster brother or relative of Herod Antipas, who had been converted. And there's Saul, who was a Jewish believer. And this is quite a mix, isn't it? And I think what ha- would have struck you when you first visited the church in Antioch was not the media, of course, or the bulletin, or the coffee, or the snacks, the facility. No, it would have been the people. This was quite a diverse church. Now, we long for this at IDC. We're making steps here. We're growing. We have a ways to go. We want this to be a reality. We can do better, and I think we will do better. And we're praying for that. And I think this diversity in Antioch had two things. It had an attractional dimension to it, and it had a missional dimension to it. It had an attractional dimension in this. If you're an outsider, regardless of where you came from, you would look at this church and you could see yourself joining it because it was not homogenous. They could see diversity. It's attractive to outsiders. But it also had a missional dimension to it. These diverse individuals could reach diverse individuals. And because we tend to reach uh, the people that we, we engage with, the people that we're uh, around. And if you had a background like these leaders, for example, then naturally you could uh, share the gospel with uh, those particular demographics. Think about it, friends. The concept of worldwide missions was born in this diverse group. And that should not surprise us because Jesus will have a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And the first truly international church reflected that in a small way. The church here on earth reflecting the church in heaven. That's our goal. Number five, finally, there is spirit-directed, church-sent, and church-supported missionaries. Verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord with fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. Now we see missions about to happen. What, what happens next in Acts 13 is what's called first, uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And it all originates right here. And we see here that worship and expectant prayer fueled the mission. This is another thing. We don't have to pick. Are we going to be vibrant in worship? Are we going to seek the Lord in fervent prayer? Or are we going to be missional? Yes. While they're worshiping, while they're fasting, while they're praying, these are gifted men, these leaders, and yet they're still fasting and depending on the Lord. Not depending on their gifting. These members here, the they, I think, includes the whole church in verse 2. 
as they're assembled together, they're seeking the Lord. And then the Spirit speaks and the church confirms. Now notice here that the, the Spirit and the congregation together affirm this mission. Like there are two mistakes churches have to avoid when it comes to mission. One is individualism and the other is institutionalism. Individualism, that is, you feel a call, but there's no, there's no, there's no church that would confirm it, send you, support you, etc. And the other is to be institutionalized where there is no sense of the Spirit. There is no sense of calling. You have both here in Antioch, don't you? It is the Spirit who is stirring up the church, confirming these things, and they send out the missionaries. And then Paul does not operate in isolation, but reports back to the church in Antioch. It's a beautiful picture of how it ought to work. Now, I want to encourage some of you, in in light of this word about the Spirit, to be open to significant change in your own life. Now, I just want to say a personal word here to non-seminary students. We have a lot of missionaries who come to uh, the seminary who, who want to be trained and want to be sent out, and that's wonderful. We are one of the top ten churches in the Southern Baptist Convention in sending out international missionaries. There are five of the top ten right here in RDU, and that in many ways is due to uh, the great seminary in Wake Forest. But here's my prayer, and I'm happy. I'm very happy. We love our missionaries, and we pray the Lord will keep, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to make an impact on the nation. So I am in, in, not in any way being negative about that. What I want to say is I want to see something additional to that. And this has been my prayer. In fact, I was, I was sleeping about two months ago and I woke myself up in a dream and we were in a prayer meeting in here. <laughs> and I woke myself up because I was praying so loudly that the Lord would raise up non-seminary students to take the gospel to the nations. I'm longing for the day in which we see individuals who've been raised in this church who say, I think the Spirit is prompting me to relocate, to take the gospel. I long for our kids, our gazillion kids we've got here, (laughs) to be raised up and to be sent out. I long for our businessmen and women to to consider relocating. I was on the phone this week with a good friend of mine in Dubai, Scott Zeller, and Scott says, Tony, will you pray that the Lord would send some of your people to Dubai to do business? You can speak English in Dubai. And you're in the, you're in the, in the middle of a, in a massive mission field. I long for college grads at NC State to say, why don't I give the first two years after graduation to go overseas? You get the idea, this is my longing. That we, to be a truly sending church, means that we're raising people up from within. It means that we're reading missionary biographies to our kids. We're giving them a vision at an early age of taking the gospel to dark places. It means we're praying to those ends. Well, the final thing I'll just note in this text is how the church sent out their best. I mean, it's easy to send some people out, right? Like, please go to the nation. Right? <laughs> we'll pray for you. We don't have anybody like that at IDC. Um, I'm being honest. I, I don't think like that at all. Um, the best, they send out Paul and Barney. I mean, these guys, the, the church is largely due in terms of a human level, their leadership. They've been teaching for over a year. 
And yet the Spirit says, you got to send those guys out. How many of you would, if you were in Antioch, you'd be like, no. We're going to send, you know, John. We're going to send somebody else. But no, they send their best. You know, this is the thing, IDC. We have such a sending culture here. And at times it's, it can be wearisome to keep seeing people go out, especially when you love them deeply. I was talking to Kirk and our Hawaii team as they start forming a church this past week. We were Zooming with them. And I told Kirk, he always stood at the back door because he did security. The first Sunday, I didn't see him standing back there. I almost cried. And these, this is what we call gospel goodbyes. It's sending out people for gospel purposes. A gospel goodbye is you and I saying, we have eternity to fellowship together. We can sacrifice temporarily because Jesus is worth it. Because the mission is worth it. And by the way, let's not forget that the Father sent out heaven's best, Jesus Christ, as the missionary that we all need. And don't you see Christ through this church? And one of the reasons you should study the church in Acts is to, see, is to get to know Jesus better. Because as you look at these ingredients, evangelism, discipleship, mercy, multicultural membership, spirit's direction, you see Jesus behind it. You see the church just reflecting Jesus, right? Jesus, evangelistically, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what we're doing. Discipleship, no one taught like Jesus with authority and not like the scribes. No one did mercy like Jesus, cared for the marginalized and the poor. What about multicultural membership? Well, he's just assembling heaven to be populated with people from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. And it was the Spirit of the Lord that was upon him to do this mission. And so as we look at Antioch, we say we want to be like this. And in so doing, we want to magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came as the missionary for us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We have seen the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and we are glad. And we want to take this good news to our neighbors and to the nations. May God grant us grace, IDC. God's hand be on us. Let's pray together. Father, we need your touch. We need your hand. We pray you would use us in our web of relationships. I pray that no one in this room would feel like their act of evangelism is insignificant. Thank you for praying moms who pray for their kids to come to faith. May they not grow weary in doing that. For those who are setting a godly example in the workplace and saying a good word about Christ when they can, I pray they would not grow weary in well-doing. For those who are prayer walking their neighborhoods and having conversations and opening up their homes, for those who are engaging in these ministries we spotlighted, I pray that they would not grow weary in well-doing. May your hand be upon us. Use us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.